This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Greg Carlock, architect of the Green New Deal and senior advisor to Data for Progress. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So Greg, we've heard a lot recently about the Green New Deal. What exactly is it and why does it matter to millennials? Yeah, so I, you know, what is it right now? It's, it's an idea. You know, it really is a framework. Uh, at least to me, you know, I come from a policy space in, in Washington, D.C. I, I live and breathe kind of climate and energy policy. And in the simplest terms, you know, Green New Deal, we can kind of get into unpack the origins of that. But it is it's three things, right? It's and it, I think the, the people's climate movement frame it best. It's climate, jobs and justice It is really about tying together three progressive issues, uh, not artificially, but organically, because they're all related. Right? And so it is a call for massive public investment uh, into solutions that will actually transform the economy, actually make the definition of, of a good job better, resolve some of these current and historical inequities, um, and, and the same, at the same time have the added benefit of solving the climate crisis. Uh, you know, it's really fundamentally what it is. What it means to a lot of other people, though, you know, the, those folks in the Sunrise Movement and other um, grassroots and other organizing and other activist organizations, it means a lot of different things. Um, and I think those folks have expressed their views about the scale and urgency of the problems that they face um, dealing with the fossil fuel industries and the, the natural gas pipelines and exploitation and injustice and health and asthma and a lot of issues that they bring to the table, uh, which is why I see, I see a lot of momentum coming out of D.C. right now that says, we want a solution. We want a package. Green New Deal is a framing that's out there. And I think the details are yet to be yet to be discovered on, on what that will look like. And what are the discussions going on in Washington? We've seen protesters occupy Nancy Pelosi's office. What exactly is being fought for and who is fighting for what? Yeah, so I think some of the, certainly the loudest advocates for this at the moment have, have rightfully gone gained a lot of uh, recent attention post-election or folks out of the Sunrise Movement. What I've seen from, uh, you know, what they're doing is this call, you know, uh, well-coordinated with Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, calling for what what seems like a boring legislative process, which is a committee, right? But why that, why they put stock in that request is they are asking for a legislative mandate to draft a bill. Right, to go through, to spend two years um, going through that legislative sausage making, uh, building the constituencies, and have as a requirement, as a mandate, to get a bill out of committee that will pass the House, and then looking towards a future moment, hopefully after the 2020 elections, to get something that will pass a, uh, an amenable Senate and, and hopefully a president. Um, 
And so, you know, that's the, the fundamental, that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the request. But, uh, you know, within that is the activism that says, uh, definitely driven by a, a millennial cohort, a really inspiring millennial cohort that says, we accept the urgency. We accept what's coming out of the IPCC 1.5 degree report that says that in order to uh, keep the worst impacts of climate that we are locked into, to, to avoid those, we need uh, to really sh- demonstrate massive decarbonization in our economy over the next 12, 12 years. Uh, really set that off in order to get on a, on a progress towards decarbonization by mid-century. And that the youth have to live with that future, right? And so that they are pushing this initiative, this, this plan, this movement, this attention, um, and include things in that committee mandate around how do we transition to 100% renewable or clean energy, the use of renewable, there's a lot to go there. Um, how to deal with a just transition of effective communities, how to build, build resilience, uh, but, but really shepherd the transformation in the economy. And then ensure that that leads to quality jobs of, of communities who can help implement that community, that, that transition and deal with some of the, you know, take into consideration a lot of the injustices and actively resolve those. So you touched on the fact that we do have a Republican Senate and a Republican president. Given that, what can the Democratic majority in the House actually do with the Green New Deal? What progress can be made? We have to accept that reality. Uh, but I think that that reality is also an opportunity to get this right. I'm in the personal stance of this is not going to be one bill. I think that this will be multiple pieces. There will be elements that are uh, that kind of stand on their own and address a key issue of this. And then there will be pieces that will slot into other packages, whether it's a tax reform, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's um, something around transportation or, or additional environmental regulation. And and so that the scale of this requires the time to figure out the legislative strategy, to build the the coalitions and the constituencies that support this and really stress test a lot of these ideas to make sure that whatever comes out in various pieces um, over the next two years um, will will survive House vote will survive um, a Senate vote and survive hopefully a president so that it is passable, right? And there's a lot of things that can undermine that, right? There's, there's, the, there's the economic cost elements, um, understanding the economic benefits so that you can make the case. There's getting through um, to voters. There's getting through to various coalitions and constituencies, whether that's environmental and social justice constituencies, the labor constituencies, the industry constituencies. That's a lot of work when you're talking about massive transformation. And so if you don't want to force unpopular command and control, um, unpopular because it's just unknown, uncertain, unspecific, we got to bring those groups to the table to flesh out these ideas and also leverage from the experience of those on Capitol Hill that have been doing this for a long time. There are huge climate champions. That, that exist on Capitol Hill, um, and they have a lot of experience. And so we have to accept change will not be overnight, but that means we might be able to develop something a little bit more durable um, and, and more likely to succeed and more impactful uh, to get the results that we're looking for uh, 
uh, at the end of it. And do you believe that the Democratic Party, Democratic leadership in the House will be allies to this agenda? Obviously, there is not a lot of confidence on the left that that will be the case, given that there is occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office. What do you think? Going off of what I've observed, right, there, you know, a lot of the climate, existing climate leadership on the Hill comes from the Democratic Party, regardless, right? There is the current context around corruption and immigration reform and healthcare reform that that is consuming a lot of the attention. And, and, and that question that I think probably spun around Nancy Pelosi's head, Leader Pelosi's head, about how much political capital do you want to sink into these things? Also acknowledging that the reason the last time that Waxman Markey's climate uh, cap and trade kind of still fell apart in the Senate was precisely this burning political capital on these other issues. And, and so, so I think that there is climate leadership there. But what's changed, I think, is that it's been elevated to uh, this, this faction, not a faction, a large contingency of, of Democratic voters to say, no, we want this as a top agenda item, and we want you to respond. And I think what you, you are starting to hear out of many Democrats on the Hill is that we are there to, to respond. And I think some of the 18 or 20 so um, new and recent and existing members of Congress that have um, signed on to this committee plan is an example of folks within uh, Capitol Hill that are willing to, within Congress, willing to have this conversation um, and to, you know, to embrace this framing and say, we are going to work through it. Now, whether that's through a select committee or whether that's through the existing committee, whether that's through signature bills, whether that's through riders um, on other bills, that's all got to be figured out. Um, and that's the legislative sausage making that happen. Um, but I will say that you know, it, it appears as if, and what, from what I'm hearing is, is that not adequately addressing climate, the lack of dem- democratic leadership is no longer acceptable, and that it is an area where Democrats will be challenged in upcoming primaries. Again, if you are not strong on climate on this issue, if you are not advancing it enough, we will challenge you. From the left, we will, um, and that's not me, me saying this, I think it's some of the strategies that have been out there, is um, uh, we, will, we will challenge you in the, in the primary to make sure that we have um, a climate candidate making, uh, making this possible. And what do you think of that strategy of primarying Democratic incumbents from the left? Do you think that's effective? I, I think time will tell. Um, you know, I'm not a political strategist. But I do think, you know, if you kind of look at the 10 years ago and the Tea Party movement is effectively that, uh, you know, you had this more rural working class component of the Republican Party that felt left behind and felt that, that Republicans were not responding in the way that they wanted to them. And so where they had influence was challenge the Republicans and, and get them to move right. And it is, you know, what Justice Democrats have done and others uh, on the left is is not 100% analogous, certainly, to, to the Tea Party, but it is kind of a recent um, analog to, to what the Tea Party did. And if that is where your influence is, if that is where you can uh, pull together enough Democratic voters and, and storm a 
uh, a town hall or rally um, kind of a Twitter mobilization and rally voters that says, no, we will influence the election or the candidate that we think is better representative of our progressive values. You know, I mean, just look at uh, the Justice Democrats' results in the most recent election where they were able to, in arguably safe Democratic districts, because they weren't able to flip any Republican seats, but I don't think that was the strategy. The strategy was move the Democrats towards a more progressive agenda. Now, that's test one, right? Test two is, will what would the results in Congress be? The ability to work with more centrist and moderate Democrats, the ability to work with Republicans on bipartisan things, which is still something that happens and we hope happens. Um, that that test has to bear out over over a couple more years. So obviously, Democrats do not have unified control in Washington. However, Democrats have gained a lot of power on a state level. They now have several more trifectas than before because of the midterm elections. They have control in many cities. Is there any progress that can be made on the Green New Deal outside of the federal government? Absolutely. I mean, looking back to the summer of last year when um, President Trump said that he was going to pull out of the Paris Agreement, we saw um, a large upswell of cities and states and other what we call non-federal or subnational actors, uh, universities, businesses, say we're still in Paris, you know, we are still in movement and increase their ambition and their commitments to doing something within their domain because ultimately everybody has to be involved. Um, and, and, and also making sure we're making the framing that this is not negative or uh, painful. There are some sacrifices, there are some choices that have to be made, but this is about increases. There are economic growth opportunities, there are benefits to the actors who take these kinds of steps, cost savings ones, resilient um, to climate impacts. Um, and so for the past year and a half, you've seen a lot of cities and states, U.S. states, like the U.S. Climate Alliance or climate mayors or the, uh, the um, U.S. Compact of Mayors, that they are advancing um, their climate initiatives, their climate ambition, and trying to find ways in which they can use their authority and their sphere of influence to do things on this. And so whether or not we can cast that, and I think there's work to be done to describe what is a Green New Deal for a state, what is a Green New Deal for uh, a city or a locality, um, they absolutely, uh, and I think are, exploring um, policies and investments that they can do that are also constructive to the transformation of our economy. One of the most recent examples that unfortunately failed was the Washington uh, ballot initiative that would have put some... Statewide price on, on carbon and use those investments for investing in the community and renewable energy and local and low income um, and disadvantaged community, um, uh, weatherization, um, some other infrastructure investments in electric vehicles, and, um, and really bringing the communities into the process, tribal communities, particularly out in, in Washington, that's, that's a, a large part of the, their, their culture and bringing those voices into the conversation. I think that that was a state-level model for, uh, for what a Green New Deal could be. Um, and they also had a really good coalition-building process that took multiple attempts at it. It failed, ultimately, because when you put it to a ballot initiative and uh, have $30, billion, $30 million of fossil fuel money telling people that your personal lifestyle is going to change and be painful if this passes, 
that's a hard narrative to fight. But other states are exploring that. Um, there's, there's at least seven other states that are exploring carbon pricing with that kind of model, building the constituency, uh, reinvesting in those communities and in the transformation. Um, and then cities, you know, Portland just passed this clean energy or renewable energy initiative, uh, similarly by ballot measure that is a 1% business tax. Um, and reinvest it into the, into the community. Um, so I think that there is, there has to be movement at the federal, the state, and the local level on all of these things. And the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, you think about something like utilities, there's really so much the federal government can currently do, um, both in the near term and, and in overall authority. States can do a lot. There are certain states that have a lot of authority to, to influence, you know, where utilities generate. Their, their energy and moving towards renewable. That's a role that they have to play. And you talked earlier about how the Green New Deal hits upon multiple progressive priorities, not just environmentalism. Could you expand upon that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, climate change is an emergent problem of our economic system. It is a product of how we use our resources, how we manage our pollution. And there are other aspects that are emergent problems of our economic system, like social and environmental injustice and income inequality and all those those things. Um, Those are all core to the progressive agenda of transforming our economy, transforming to a 21st century economy that works for everybody, um, that redefines the quality of a good job, that handles, that that resolves, that addresses inequities, and and also has the added benefit of handling the worst of the climate crisis. These kind these kinds of large scale spending and investments requires job. It will stimulate growth. It is by definition a stimulus bill. It will stimulate economic growth. There will be jobs that come out of that. Let's use that opportunity to redefine us what a good job is, right? And ensuring that this money is going towards jobs through through the various mechanisms, whether through the you know, the contract mechanisms or the grant terms, the state grants, um, or appropriations to different, um, causes. Um, there's, there's job standard requirements on them about the kind of jobs that they have to support. Um, or this concept of a green job guarantee, which means that anybody who wants a job can go to, whether it's facilitated out of a nonprofit or facilitated out of the state government or local government that says, hey, I'm here for a job. Um, it's a green job that supports part of the implementation of various policies and investments um, and and that will help with um, you know that kind of that unemployment issue for for livable wage jobs and those types of jobs have again livable wages benefits collective bargaining all of this kind of progressive priorities that that are, are demanded um, and that is to create kind of a, a new market for high quality job that will put pressure on the rest of economy for you know, I could go work really low wages or something that doesn't protect me or give me health care, all that kind of stuff. Or I can go to through this program that is federally funded and get something there. Um, the other the other piece of it is you know, there's other sort of there are, there are justice groups out there that spend a lot of time thinking about this um, more than me. But it is ensuring that we don't repeat the same mistakes of the original New Deal and institutionalizing kind of racist policies and, and outcomes, and ensuring that it's built on a foundation of equity and justice from the beginning. Um, and that means prioritizing criteria that prioritize 
where these investments go to disadvantaged communities, um, communities of color, low income communities to make sure that the benefits are, are not again, um, aggregated within a certain demographic of the country. So speaking of the original New Deal, one of the biggest impediments was a conservative Supreme Court. Do you imagine that'll be a problem that the Green New Deal could run into now? Yeah, that's really hard to say, right? I mean, there are a lot of structural challenges um, that we have to be cognizant of. Uh, So whether or not you're talking about state levels and and getting the attention about a lot of the legislatures, like it's great that the tide is is moving there um, and there's a lot more states that we have to work with to hopefully get a majority to solve some of these structural election problems, like the gerrymandering and the voting issues, in order to just have a representative representative legislatures there and, and, and the courts will also play a role in this in environment in the history of environmental law the courts have always played a strong role in in adjudicating a lot of these lawsuits and so um that's really hard to say the supreme court is not um does not yet seem to be doesn't seem to be structured in a way that is going to be amenable to these types of things however i don't think that they have had to decide on any of them this could be part of that constituency building and that stress testing of where are the holes, where are the weaknesses, where might it be challenged, where might it be misrepresented in order to sway support or make it open to judicial review or litigation. Time will tell. But uh, you know, the Supreme Court issue, the one, last thing I'll kind of say on the Supreme Court thing, is you have to look at congressional authority, right? I mean, we, we already have a lot of precedent on where Congress has authority to regulate these things. Um, it's kind of pretty settled law through, through Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and Commerce Clause and, and things like that. And so if you, if you aren't, I think that there's a lot that can be done under existing congressional and constitutional authority, you know, which is very different than kind of where things were back when FDR was trying to push through some of these things. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Obviously, activists are currently doing a lot to push the Green New Deal. As Democrats are fully inaugurated, 
what can activists do to keep the pressure on them? Yeah, and and couching this as as being a very passionate person in this topic, but not being you know, an activist mobilizer myself, culture is very important. And I think the attention that has been brought to it recently has elevated this to a, a conversation where it wasn't leading into the election, um, and it would have quickly faded further after the election. But it elevated it to be one of the top four, in my mind, of what Congress has to set out to and that that needs to be sustained. I think so. There's multiple ways to do that, and I think you can see different models from different activities and, and grassroots organizations um, at many levels. It will take time, and there will be processes and things that happen that we won't fully understand. But um, not saying we give people the benefit of the doubt. I think we need to keep them honest. Uh, but this will take time, and um, understanding that. That doesn't mean you to put off the pedal. But you also, I think we also have to, you have to allow for some legislative things. That we have. If we're demanding things, there will be some increments of progress over the next few years, and we need to give them that win and, and, and boost their, um, their visibility on that, because that is how, you know, that's how legislators and policy, well, politicians, that is their currency, right? That is like, I brought a win home. Um, I was asked to do something, I did it, right? We have to see them up for political wins because that is how we can build their confidence and build their momentum and, and build the momentum of this movement that we think is possible. So I think we have to um, hold them to accountability but also pat them on the back when, when those opportunities arise. Similarly, we can't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Uh, we need a lot. We need to close to perfect. Like, no one, no one that does not mean to undersell the scale and urgency in which we have to move and the scale of the problems and the concerns that different constituencies have, particularly in the justice community, who are so articulate on some of these issues that a lot of us don't do on a particular basis. We can't under, we can't move over those we have and say, well, you know, like, we got to win on renewable energy, like, get those, like, you can't, you have to acknowledge that those have to come, those wins have to come along too. Or it's kind of a hollow win. Beyond that, I mean, kind of from a personal sense of activism, this transformation, like any transformation or any kind of major policy platform, well, a lot of people are not super articulate on it. They don't know what it means for them. They don't know how it can affect their life, their family, their job, their ability to succeed, achieve the American dream, what have you. And, and, and then that's kind of coupled with, they might not know a lot about the climate crisis. They might not know what's going on or what it means for them. Um, what it means to the country as a whole, um, what it means today, what it means in 10 years. And so we have to maybe show some of those those folks some grace and, and just open up some dialogues that says, here's why this is important to me. Here's my understanding of the issue. Here's why I care a lot about this. And then ask them, you know, what do they think? Engage in a dialogue um, and and. I think the mobilization around this is not just showing up for protests and tweet storms and all that kind of stuff. And, and those have a great effect. They work. We got to keep them up. Uh, but there is another half that, that I think is a core part of civic, of civic activism, which is engaging in conversation. And lastly, where can folks find you online? Yeah, I mean, the best place right now is you can find me on Twitter at Gregory T. Carlock. 
most of my stuff will go through their different engagements that I have. So uh, you can hit me up and follow me and it'd be great. Love to talk. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about the Green New Deal. We'd love to follow up with you later as we see the progress that's made in Washington. That sounds great. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Jordan. Yeah, of course. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe to the Millennial Politics Podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.